0: Okay, well, uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're starting this week. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Philippians chapter 2. We've been in the book of Philippians where uh, Paul is basically in his uh, second two-year imprisonment term. He's now in Rome. The first one was in Caesarea. And uh, he's now in Rome, he's not in Rome how he wanted to get to Rome, he's actually in Rome now as a prisoner, he wanted to get there so that he would proclaim and preach the gospel. Um, not that he's not still doing that, he's doing that just chained to Roman prison guards, which uh, basically change every four to six hours, so he's got multiple guards every day where he is, by his conduct, by his character, and by his voice, advancing the kingdom of God. And then we learned uh, we kind of got ahead of ourselves in chapter 4 and saw that, that even Paul's preaching, God's Paul's evangelism in this Roman prison cell is actually transforming Caesar's household. So there are Roman prison guards and people within the household of Caesar who are getting saved because he says at the end of his letter, he's going to say, hey, we all greet you and even the saints that are in Caesar's household. So this is amazing that the presence of Paul, that God's sovereignly placing him in this Roman prison, is actually advancing the good news of Jesus. And and what we saw last week was, is, is Paul really got at the heart of it all and said, hey, if you're going to walk together and labor together, you've got to be firmly united in this thing. Okay, you guys, let, let, let's be firmly rooted, not just in our preferences, but when, what, are, what are main things, let's have the same mind, let's strive together, let's bear with each other, let's work towards forgiveness and walking with and learning each other's backgrounds and heritages so that we can love Jesus and so that the message of the gospel is more beautiful. Um, And here's what he's going to show us this morning. We don't just walk firmly united, we walk humbly united. Okay, so so some of the stuff he's going to say in the beginning of chapter 2 is just kind of repeat of verses 27 to 30, which we talked about last week. If you didn't hear that sermon, I'm not going to repeat that this morning. You need to go listen to that because it really flows into this morning really well. And so here is what Paul's basically going to show us this morning, okay? The gospel is the greatest cause to unite us. Okay? So the fact that we all stood in opposition to God because of our sin, that His Right wrath should be poured out against us. And God said, no, I'm going to take it in their place, pay the debt they didn't deserve. I'm going to atone for their sin. I'm going to appease the wrath of God. I'm going to show amazing grace, amazing mercy. I'm going to get nailed. I'm going to absorb all that on you. I'm going to actually become your sin for you and not just take your sin but give you my righteousness. The person who sees that, okay, the person who has been affected by that, what is the posture of that person? It has to create humility. Humility. Like, if, if you really understand who you were before you were brought into the fold of God, before you were adopted into the fold of God, before you experienced the grace and mercy of Christ, that cannot not produce a lowly heart. One that, that longs to look to the interests of others because we're going to see, we just model Christ. We look to the one who did it most majestically, and then we in our desire to honor him and live for him and by what he's done in us that cultivates this amazing wonder that is called humility. Now, this morning's going to sting, okay? Because he just gets right at the heart. And, and none of us are outside of this, okay? So let me just encourage all of us, all right? It, it, Paul's basically going to say if you got saved, then spiritual swagger shouldn't exist. Like That, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be present in you, Okay? Because, that, that, again, we said an oxymoron is an arrogant Christian. I don't think we talk about this enough, but Paul thankfully talks about it. He says, hey, this is actually how we walk and how we act. And he starts chapter 2 basically just summarizing what we walk through in chapter 1. Look at what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Okay, so Paul basically just starts out this passage just encouraging some reflection. Okay, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Okay, well, we we all know he just told us all the encouragements that are in Christ. Right, I mean, no matter your background, no matter your ethnicity, no matter where you're from, salvation can be found. Right, and not only does God save every type of person, right, no one is too sinful or too wayward, too too far from being brought in the fold of God by God. Not only does he take great delight in saving you and doing that amazing work of salvation, he takes delight in, in justifying you and then sanctifying you. Right, he walks with you. Right, He doesn't save you and then spend the rest of your life regretting what he did, wishing you'd clean yourself up more. Right? He actually walks alongside you, giving you power by his Holy Spirit to walk a life that is pleasing to him. Not by you doing better, but by his Spirit enabling you and working through you. So we see this amazing reality that, that God just takes all of these things that is called salvation, all these things that is, that is part of the work of the cross of Christ, and he does that for us, and then he walks with us. So we're, we're very encouraged That he doesn't forget us and let go of us. That he keeps us. And then we saw also that he then unites us. That he allows us to act. That it's possible to walk in unity. Despite preferences. Despite backgrounds. Despite denominations. That that's possible. That it takes an act of his Holy Spirit. And then he says if you've experienced the love of Christ. Listen if, if, if you're a bud blot citizen of the kingdom. You've experienced God's love. Because God's love is fundamentally what drove him to the cross to rescue you from your sin. So if you've experienced the freedom from the sin you were enslaved to, his love freed you. You've, you've experienced that love of Christ. He's just reminding you of these things that we've talked about in chapter 1. And then he says, now make my joy complete, Philippi. This is what's going to make me really happy. Interesting. Here, here this is what's going to make me a happy man. He says, seeing you live together in an, with an agreeable and cooperative spirit that's what's really going to bolster my joy is seeing Lydia this business professional seeing you this slave girl who felt worthless and was bitter spent most of her life angry hey you jailer was just kind of indifferent to everything it just kind of had some power okay seeing all you guys live together in an agreeable way cooperating for the advancement of the gospel is going to make me happy now we can We can understand this. We talked about last week how we're a circus in here, right? We've got so many denominations represented in here, so many backgrounds represented in here that that of course this would make a Christian happy to see different backgrounds getting together, rallying under the banner of Christ crucified and seeing lost people reconciled to God by the visible display of his church. And then he rolls, after he kind of gives us this time of reflection, he rolls into this weighty command, do nothing. Okay, so if you're motivated to do anything, it cannot be motivated by the next two words. Okay, so, so, so do nothing. And what does he say here? He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Christian, don't be motivated in your decisions to make much of you. Do not be motivated in your decisions to one-up someone else, to have rivalry, to have conceit. Now, now this is more than just jealousy. This is resentment, anger, bitterness towards someone else, right? And, and, and you just, you just want to one-up them, right? Well, I just want to serve a little bit more than that person. Everything's motivated by you wanting to make much of you. And he's saying, "Hey, if, if this has happened to you, if you have been saved by God's grace, if there's encouragement in Christ, if you've understood His love, then, then you're not motivated by rivalry and conceit." Now now some translations will say, um, "vain conceit." That's really good, because what this word really means is just empty glory. It, it's you're pursuing an illusion. Like your pursuit of fame and fortune and prestige and you, you just being made known in your job or in your neighborhood or in the church even, right? I, I want to be this position because I want to be made known. I want people to notice me. I want to be liked, right? That's just an empty glory. It's vain, right? It's, it's just an illusion. Why? Because you can't be God. Because it's you saying, I want to control circumstances. I want to be worshipped like God is worshipped, but you can't be. Because only one God can truly be worshipped because he's God. So he's saying this is just a, an empty trail. This is a, a pursuit of something that will get you nowhere. We see this all the time, right, with sin. It's just an illusion. We pursue this thing, this addiction, this, this, whatever it is. You just put it in the box and you pursue that because you think that thing is going to make you happy, Is going to make much of you, and eventually terminate or kill the angst you feel for wanting deep joy and contentment. And what happens? You just need more of it. And you start running in the cul-de-sac, every single house, over and over and over again, going to the same sin. And you buy the dysfunctional, cultural lie that says, hey, just keep trying what doesn't work and it might work. So you just keep trying it. (laughs) And it doesn't work. It works for a season, then you find yourself back there, but you just keep trying it. It's this idea. When you pursue fame and glory for yourself, you're just running in a cul-de-sac. And you'll never have enough of it. You know this. The men that want to work to the Fortune 500 CEO position and they get there and it's just never enough. Right? You want more. Those who exhaust themselves in, in working out, wanting to look a certain way, it's never enough for you. You never have enough percentage body fat loss. You want more. Seriously, it's never enough. I mean, if that's what you're seeking for contentment and joy, which this letter is about, you'll never find it there. You'll always be frustrated. And so here he's showing, this is what happens when we live that way in the faith family. It's an empty pursuit. And if you do that with one another, I mean, that's going to kill the body. Because you're going to start wanting it so badly that you'll start doing things to one another that make no logical sense. Right? And you'll find yourself in a place that isn't rational or anything but looking like Jesus Christ. And so this idea of empty glory, vain conceit is... We worship ourselves as God, and we don't worship God. Now, here's the thing. You and I make terrible gods, right? So when you worship your God, which is you, it's not going to work well well for you because you didn't make the universe, right? You didn't wire people. You didn't put your brain inside your head. You didn't give yourself the heart that beats and causes blood to flow through your body in vain. You, You didn't do any of that, Right? You're just a recipient of the God of the universe saying I'll be kind to you. Here I think C.S. Lewis says it well when he talks about because the issue is pride. Arrogance if we can boil it down. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. It is comparison that makes you proud. This is what the American dream teaches us. Right? Just have more than your neighbor. Right? This is Bergen County, the surrounding New York area, right, we can all agree to this, right, if you live anywhere nearby here, right, this is the, the, the banner, just make more for you, make more money than the other guy, just kind of up the other guy a little bit more, get, get maybe a, a better wife than your neighbor, get a little bit of a nicer car, just, you know, just keep bolstering you, right, I mean, this is the banner that, that we're waving, I mean, this is the American dream at its best, and this is fundamentally rooted in us believing that we deserve more than we're getting. Right, so this is what vain conceit and rivalry does. It's, I'm worth more worship and praise than what I'm getting from people. So you get rivalrous and you get conceited. Right? Or, I deserve more money than what I'm getting. Right? That creates conceitedness and rivalry. Right? I-, I deserve more worship than what I'm getting. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. And it's just an illusion. And this is very simply, at its best, pride. Now here's what's important, no, we, don't have, we don't have time for this, but the scriptures will say over and over and over again that God extends mercy to the humble and he opposes the proud. Listen, I don't know of anything more terrifying in the Bible, aside from being cast into eternal torment forever, than the God of the universe opposing me. Because of some, because of Pride? And we could sit here for, for weeks and look at stories in the scriptures where God clearly extends mercy and grace to the humble of heart and exalts them and opposes the proud. We, we, we could do that because you're basically saying that, that I should be God and God should not be. And we're trying to replace ourselves with him. And so when you have a right understanding That God extends mercy to those who fear him. And I'm not talking about like literal trembling terror. I'm talking about awe. Like like when you lose the awe and majesty and might that is the God of the universe, you grow very proud. And when you have a good, meaty, bolstering look at the God of the universe in his awe, in his might, in his majesty, it cultivates a humility. Humility. Right? It creates a lowliness of heart. It creates a servant's attitude. We're going we're gonna to see that in just a minute. So, so just a second. Here's how pride begins to work itself out. Um, just a few ways that, that I've seen, and, and there are many. right? Um, one is that if you just love to dish out critiques, it's, it's probably because there's some pride there. Like if you enjoy it. Like if you enjoy criticizing others, Maybe, maybe there's some pride because you love calling the shots. You love appearing better than somebody else. It's a competition. So if you take joy in that, I'm not saying about good, healthy conversation, good criticism. Good, that, that should be happening in the faith family. But if you take some weird delight in criticizing others or talking just wickedly about somebody, there might be pride in your heart. There is pride in your heart. Not maybe. <laughs> because as I was studying this, I thought that the conceited person is always buying the lie that they're in control. Right? And that's, that's what we're doing. Pride is always saying, I'm in control. I play the role of God. And so at the, at the end of the day, a pride problem is a God problem. If you have a pride problem, you have a God problem. You don't understand the God of the universe. You don't understand the weight of your sin. You don't understand the weight of his mercy, right? You've got the cross of Christ problem. And it affects so many, so many different things. I see this a lot of times in, in marriages and even in parenting. Even though I'm just starting out at this right, we, we are just so prideful in our way that we become self-fulfilling prophets. But it's in pride and arrogance that those things happen, right? So the wife who's just like, you know, so concerned or the husband that's so concerned about everything their wife's doing is just afraid they're going to leave because they've been wounded in the past. And so they're just trying to just set up all these systems in place, reading their text messages, following their email. And eventually this, one of the spouses say, what? I don't know if I can handle this anymore. And they leave. And the person in pride says, see, they did what I always thought they'd do. Well, no, you, you, in your pride, you were the thing that, that caused them to do that. In parenting, we just, we just we don't want our kids to rebel. So we put up every possible fence, taser guns, big dogs, right, get them in the, in the circular house, right, that has no exit doors. And we do that all of the life of our children. It doesn't mean wise parenting, watching out for them, shepherding them, protecting them. But we do it to a point where we're so afraid of them rebelling, then they get older and they're finally out and they just rebel. And You're like, see? Well, you're, you're trying to control the universe. You weren't really entrusting your children to the God of the universe. So it was really pride driving your decisions, not humility. Another way we see pride a lot manifested, and this happens, the the longer I'm in ministry you see this, is, is you've been really hurt by something in your past. So it might be in your family, it might be the church did something to you, it might be I don't know what it is. But what happens is you grow so prideful and arrogant because of your hurt that everyone else is the enemy. Okay, everyone else is the author of your hurt. So instead of you dealing with the issue, the internal issue of hurt, you blame everybody else. So you have new friends every year. And you think everyone just betrays you. Well, maybe it's not everyone leaving you or abandoning you. Maybe you and your pride are not dealing with the internal hurt that you've been caused. And so in pride and arrogance, you walk around with this idea that everyone else is to blame. And I'm saying that's, that's a proud way to live. And we see that a lot with the church, right? Well, 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 this person did this to me, so now the church is your enemy. And when the church doesn't do what you want it to do for you, you get frustrated. That's arrogant. That's proud. You need to deal with the root issue in your heart, whatever that is, to bring you to a place of humility and, and be able to see this with a clear view otherwise if we don't end up dealing with those things you'll end up living a life where everything that happens to you is everyone else's fault your whole life your whole life is everyone else's to blame the universe is to blame culture's to blame the government's to blame no our sin is to blame And only Christ can kill that sin and revive us. So just a question, are there any deep heart issues that need to be submitted to the Lord in your life? I don't know what those are. Maybe that's a good thing to pray through this week. Are there areas or issues or or ways you've been hurt where you don't even realize it's being manifested? That's that's what's so hard about this, right? The proud person has trouble seeing it. That's why I love having a wife. (laughs) Right? Because Kristen is able to tell me, hey, you are walking in arrogance. Okay, good. Yeah, you're helping me see that. I didn't see that, right? And it's responding to that graciously, not arrogantly, right? <laughs> this is consistently the challenge I, I see in marriages often. This is a, a good example um, of, of pride is, is, is I will sit down with a couple or hear a story where one spouse will say, hey, I really think that we just need help to the other spouse, Right? This this can be anything. It doesn't have to be he, be huge. I'm talking about more, more kind of weighty issues. You know, we need help. I think we should go see someone. I think we should go talk to someone. I think that maybe we should like seek out some help. And what does the other spouse do? Now nah, we're fine. I'll just I'll try harder. I'll fix it, right? I mean, I mean, listen. I I'm saying this all out of love and patience and grace, just pastorally to you. Listen, your spouse just said your marriage is suffering. I mean, how arrogant and prideful to then look at them and say, you know, we're fine. I mean, I'll I'll just do better. You have a track record of never doing it better. Like, there's no history of improvement or growth. And so out of love, your spouse is saying, hey, can we go get some help? What a humble thing to say. And what a proud response to say, no, our marriage is fine. Right? I mean, that's just, that's just a, a baseline example of the ways that we are so conceited, right? Even the ways that we don't see it. So, man, if, if, and look, can I just encourage all of us in here? You're with a group of fellow strugglers. Can, can, can you just find warmth in that? that? That if that's you and you're sitting here going, man, I got this issue I got this, and, and I don't really want to deal. Guess what? Everyone around you, including your pastor, is a fellow struggler. Who needs walking with, who needs love, who needs counsel, who needs care, who needs support. What a beautiful thing to live in humility. And and here's why pride is one of the most deadly sins. Right now, most of us are thinking of other people that need to hear this message. Oh man, my, my brother I mean he 's just a mess. I mean, if he was here, my son, I mean, if they were here here in this message, I man, this would resolve everything I mean yeah they 're just, they're just so conceited they 're so rivalrous. or my spouse, are you listening right you like, look right next to her, right, are you listening, elbowing right, pinching, hey, you listening? no, 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 you need to listen right I mean that 's why pride is so deadly is because we immediately go to someone else going, man. That person really needs to hear this. Do you not realize that is the very root and evidence of pride in your life? When you can never look internally and say, man, maybe I'm the problem. Or maybe I'm not perfect, which you're not, because that's easy. The God of the universe is, which is why he sent Jesus, to be your perfection for you. So you could walk in grace with him. But brothers and sisters, I I have been praying this week that that God would just make this place a humble place. Because it's so hard, it's so hard. God, would you would you cultivate this in us? And that's why this is one of the biggest destroyers of marriages. I see is when I sit down, it's always but he, but she, but he, but she, but he, but she. No, you. Stop blaming. Stop looking outward and look inward. I mean, once marriages solely look internally at themselves now, they can grow and be a godly wife, a godly husband, a, a submissive wife, a, a good leader who doesn't domineer, doesn't lead with aggression, but cares for his family as Christ cares for the church, and the wife can learn how to serve and be a suitable helper to her husband. As soon as those things are happening, the marriage gets beautiful. and the marriage flourishes. Because it's not two people attacking each other and in pride and arrogance saying, this is how you need to be better. It's in humility saying, I'm going to consider my interests your interests above my own, and where do I need to grow and walk in Christ likeness? Now we got to answer the why, okay? Otherwise, we're never gonna obtain the purpose of this text. Okay, we gotta see the why, because the point is not that you be a nice boy or girl, that you be a nice, humble husband or wife. That's not the ultimate goal, okay? Because what's going wrong with mankind is not a moral issue, it's a heart issue, okay. So when we get that right, that there's a heart issue going on, not just a moral issue. Then we can actually tackle this. And so that's why Paul roots this verse in the previous ones. Because of the encouragement you have in Christ. Because of the love you've experienced in Christ. Okay, because of Jesus, okay, now we can work towards change. Okay, now we can work towards true supernatural change this is why paul lays it out here because what he's showing us is the old self walked in rivalry and conceit but if you've trusted in jesus he killed that sin in the cross and enables the new self to walk in what he's going to say in verse three but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others okay that is hard And if you don't think that's hard, it's because you're prideful. This is so difficult. To consider other people more important than ourselves? What does everything teach you? What does every song you flip on the radio teach you? You're most important. Do what you want. Do what makes you happy. Build your empire. Don't care about other people. Just steamroll other people. If they get in the way of your dreams and your wants and your desires, just remove them. Anything that gets in the way of your selfish ambition, right? What a dangerous way to live, and what, the, what an antithesis to the biblical commands and the biblical way of living. And understand, Paul's writing to a lot of Greeks, and Greeks actually despised humility. Because the Greeks thought you should elevate yourself as high as you possibly could, where the Bible says, yes, you are deeply worthwhile. You have intrinsic value and worth, but you don't supersede the God of the universe. Yes, you're elevated, but you're not elevated above God. So there's a proper place for us to sit, right? Let me just give you two definitions. One of just the, if you go online, Google, or go to the dictionary, this is just the definition of humility you'll probably see. It's this. A modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance. <laughs> okay, it's just how you view yourself. Okay, so that is the, the world's definition of humility. Just kind of, eh, I'm kind of a modest opinion of how you are. Okay? Here's what I think. I think. This is Mike, I, not the Lord. Uh, biblical humility. Okay? This is what I think a good definition of biblical humility is self forgetfulness while looking to the interests of others. Okay? So, so, so on, the, on the worldly standpoint, it's okay, I'm examining kind of how, how good I'm doing. I'm still looking at my own opinion of my own self. Well, you're a terrible gauge of your own self because you're always going to be biased. Right? Okay, so biblically it says, no, you actually forget yourself. You don't even think of yourself. And while you're forgetting yourself, you're looking to the interests of others. You've died to yourself. And you're looking to how you can serve, advance the happiness, the joy, the good of others. And that's why I see a lot of times we talk about humility. We have such a weird view of humility. We we think humility means to just speak quietly or not talk about yourself a whole lot or be kind of mild and meek. Humility, according to the scriptures, is when you can actually stop looking at yourself, totally forget yourself, and look to the interests of your brother and sister. That's humility. Now, you know, I woke up a number of mornings this week thinking about something that I could not get off my mind. You guys ever have that happen? Where like you wake up, it just won't leave your mind? It's just there and you just can't get rid of it? And I mean, for, for an hour straight, every morning, the minute I woke up, I could not stop thinking about it. You know what I was thinking about? Me. Seriously. Every morning. For an hour straight, I going, man, I mean, woe is me. I mean, I got, I got all these phone calls to return. You got all this counseling appointment. Then I got, you know, these things. Make. I got to write a whole message for this Sunday. Woe is me. I mean, poor Mike. I thought of myself for an hour straight, I was doing pretty good. Right? I just, just kept thinking about myself, then I thought about all the stuff I had to do, and I think about, it. take care of Jackson here, and then Kristen has this, and this, and this, and then, then I'm reading this passage, and I'm going, man, Mike, what, what in the world? I mean, I mean you're, the first thing on your mind when you wake up is you. You're just thinking about yourself. You're thinking about how, how you know, poor Mike, and woe is me, and you got all these things to do, and you haven't spent one minute thinking about your wife. You haven't spent one minute thinking about the good of someone else. And there's this beautiful redirection where where you can actually tangibly see and realize, man, we think about ourselves all the time. You're naturally inclined to think about you from the moment your eyes wake to the moments they go to bed. You're naturally inclined to do that. And so that's why Paul says the proud person is the one who just thinks about themselves all the time. That's being conceited. He says, but the humble person is the one who thinks about others. So this morning, just this morning, just today, try this. Start with today. Did you consider anyone more important than yourself today? Like like from the moment you woke up. In this faith family when you walked in here, did you consider anyone in this room more important than yourself? Because we naturally just, oh, I want my coffee. I want to sit where I want to sit. I want to, right? I mean, I mean that that's it's natural, right? I mean that that's that's normal. That's the natural bent. But did you consider anyone? When was the last time you asked someone at this church, in this faith family, what's burning you? What's giving you anxiety? Or are you so busy being angry and resentment and frustrated that no one asks you how you're doing? That you're like, well, I'm not going to ask anyone else how they are doing that. Right? And that's a spiritual swagger that should be killed. Because That's where we've just just screwed up church life, right? No, no, the church is supposed to come to me. They're always supposed to cater to me. They're supposed to help me, ask me how I'm doing. Now, that's absolutely true and right and biblical and good. But listen, that's not your goal. You don't spend your world and your life walking around looking for other people to ask how you're doing and check in on you. No, your job is looked at the interests of others. Your job is, how about you go be that person? I mean, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and complain and say, man, well, well, no one ever asks me how I'm doing and I don't know. No one ever says hi to me. Well, maybe you should go say hi to someone. Maybe you should stop waiting for someone to come up to you and you go look to the interests of someone else. That's a beautiful way to live. You know what's amazing? As you start doing that, you bet people are going to start checking in on you and saying hi to you and asking you how you're doing instead of just complaining in this false humility, which is pride. This false humility that says, well, no one cares about me. This is so super challenging for us to walk in as a church. And here's what's great. That word interest is just a filler. It's open-ended. What that means is in the original language is, it says let each of you not look to your own whatever. Happiness, popularity, success, family, but look to that of others. So so don't work towards all of that of your own. Work towards spend your energy looking to the family, the popularity, the success, the good of others. It's just a filler word. You can put anything in there. Amazing what, what that would look like. Now, here is why the next two verses should be like a steak dinner when you haven't eaten in weeks. Okay? Right now, if, okay, the person who's been made new in Jesus, the person should be going, okay, what do I do? Like, like, I don't want to be the conceited, rivalrous, proud person, right? I mean, anyone in here who has the Holy Spirit should be saying, I don't want that to be me. Like, tell me the solution, right? Man, tell me how to fix this. And it's so amazing because I don't think there's anything more serious to want to kill in your life as a Christian. Out of all the residual effects of the fall, I think this one takes the cake. If we give our life to mortifying and killing a specific sin in our life that is the damning influence of every other sin, it's probably pride. So, so, so Lord, what do we do? How, do? how do we, I don't want to be conceited, I don't want to be rivalrous, I don't want to be, and it's amazing, he lays before us what to do. He shows us how to kill our pride and the foundation to our humility because we don't just go around trying to act humble. There's a source that's fueling this. And Paul gives us a picture of Jesus Christ. Right? And and, and see, we've always got to remember that no matter what we talk about, whether we talk about joy, talk about unity, whether we talk about contentment, it all comes back to Jesus Christ. Right? Everything always comes back to Jesus. Because sometimes we forget as Christians, we're supposed to actually look and live like Jesus. And that word Christian gets so diluted and screwed up in our culture. We say, oh, you're a good Christian because you show up early to church. Or you're a good Christian because you dress up and go to church. Or you're a good Christian because you don't drink. Or you're a good Christian because you don't cuss. No, no, you know what a good Christian is? Someone who just looks and lives like Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. And so we look at Jesus, we look at him, we go, man, does my life resemble his at all? I mean, does it mob, do, I, do I model him the way that he looked and lived? And Paul lays this out for us and he shows us this radical humility. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's possible. And if you're in Christ, you have this. What an awesome promise. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, when Paul says... In the form of God. Form literally means the exact nature and essence of something. So he was the exact nature and essence of God. He, was, he, was, he had all of the qualities, all of the characteristics that is God. Okay, so this you'll see this throughout the scriptures. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Okay, you'll see that Jesus was in fact equal with God. And here's what's amazing. He did not consider it. That equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now he's not talking about grasping it like, oh, Jesus is going there going, I, I just, I don't know if I really understand what it means to be equal with God. That's not the type of grasping he's talking about. He's talking about holding on to his prestige. Like, if there's anyone in the universe who deserves to exploit his, himself and use his power and authority for his gain, it'd be him. Because he can but he didn't consider the, the power, the aim, the place that he was a thing to be held onto for his own benefit alone. He became a servant. Crazy. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I want to sit here just for a second because I feel like we need to feel the weight of this. Because a lot of times if we're not careful, we, we kind of belittle Jesus. Like you got God the Father. And then you got Jesus. Then you got the stepchild Holy Spirit, right? Like, so it's kind of this stepping, you know, that you go up. No, no, no. Okay, all three of them, full of power, full of might, fully God. This Jesus who was fully God humbles himself to the place of a servant. It's amazing if you just look at creation, right? Adam wanting to be God in arrogance and pride and then Christ wanting to humble himself even though he was God, becoming man? Just the two differences that happened to reconcile what Adam did, what was wrong? There's this interesting verse in John chapter 12 where John's talking about all these people who saw the miracles of Jesus and didn't believe. And then there are these other people that see the miracles of Jesus and then they, they start repenting and believing, but they're doing it in secret because they're afraid of being persecuted. And here's what John says, this interesting verse. John says this in the midst of all of this. I think it'll help us get Philippians 2 a little bit better. In the midst of this, John's talking about Jesus, and he references Isaiah and says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay. Isaiah said these things about people not believing because he saw the glory of Jesus Christ? Like, that that just seems strange. Right? I remember reading this a couple years ago and going, this just seems strange. Because if anyone else is reading this, they're probably thinking that he's talking about God the Father. I used to read Isaiah 6 and be like, okay, wow, man, Jesus is seeing God the Father. I mean, Isaiah is seeing God the Father in his glory. But John's revealing here that it wasn't God the Father. It was Jesus sitting on the throne. So what does he see? If you have it, just hold your finger. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. And if you don't turn there, it's okay. The verse will be on the screen. But here's what John sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, so hold on a second. Isaiah gets to see the glory of Jesus. Okay, and here's what he says. Man, I I saw this being. And I think this is a good picture because, because this is really a more accurate understanding of Jesus in his glorified state. He was here for a short time, and then he ascended. So we all get, get out of your head. Jesus long hair holding sheep. Okay, like that. that's always what we think about Jesus. But Jesus is powerful. He is magnificent. He is majestic. He is huge. He is glorious. So, so here Isaiah sees this and he goes, man, this king, this Jesus was sitting on his throne. And it wasn't just a little chair. He didn't just have a little scepter. He's sitting on his throne and the train of his robe is filling the temple. Okay, so he's seeing that. Okay, then he says these these holy angels, right, who are without sin are looking at Jesus going, you're so set apart, like you're so holy, they can't stop saying it. You're so holy, you're so holy. They're they're shielding their faces because he's so holy. They're covering his feet. This image of humility. I shouldn't even walk near you. I shouldn't even be near you. And you see these images. And then here's what's even crazier. Isaiah, the second he gets a glimpse of the holiness and rightness and glory of Jesus, what does he realize? How sinful he is. If you keep reading, he goes, man, I've said some things that were bad. And I'm going, man, this this guy's a prophet. I'm thinking about all the stuff I've said. And his sin is exposed immediately as he sees the glory of Jesus. Powerful. Amazing. Amazing. This this picture here. And imagine Isaiah in this moment. Okay, now now here. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. This Jesus. This Jesus. Who all of creation bows down to and rightly worships and rightly declares that he's glorious comes and bows his face and washes disciples' feet. What? Look at verse 7. He made himself nothing. That Jesus. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's the motivation for a humble life? And what is the source and fuel of a humble life? It's the life and death of Jesus Christ. By you looking at that and seeing that and marveling at that. That makes no sense. The, the, The train of his robes filling the temple. He's this glorious being. He has a throne. He has all of creation worshiping him. And yet his love drove him to step off of that for the sake of us. Right, humbling himself, becoming a human form he actually incarnates into this sinful broken, fractured world when he had all that he needed but he didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped or held onto boys is this going to get at us because Colossians and Hebrews and other places will say that, that Jesus Jesus didn't only help create we all know that he also helps sustain all of creation right? So here's what this means. This Jesus, when he came in human likeness and walked the earth, okay, not just his life, but think about his death. I mean, the very people he made, he let inflict pain on him and abuse him and mock him, right? I mean, mean, he could have stopped it at any moment, right? Right? I mean, the one who is literally sustaining the arms of the Roman guards whipping his back. Like, he's letting them do that. Like, he's controlling their arms. Like, there's no other humility like that. That's mind-blowing. Right? That, that, That the very trees that he made, he would go put a tree on his back. And go die for humanity on the very tree that he made and spoke into existence. That, 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 that is unbelievable. And you got, you know, in the garden, Peter cuts off his ear. That's where we see Jesus acknowledges, Hey, I got all these angels that could come and save me and rescue me. No one's taking my life from me. What is he doing? I'm laying it down. I'm choosing to do this. Like, do you think I'm, I'm outside of controlling this? No, no, I am willingly out of a crazy radical act of humility not because human beings are worthy but I'm going to consider them worthy I'm going to take on the wrath of God for them I'm going to bear the price for them I'm going to pay the debt for them we don't see there's no better picture of humility so as we see this it leads to humility let me just give you an example of of how this leads to humility, practically, right? Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? Right, some of you guys? I've never been there, but it looks incredible in pictures, right? I mean, I get blown away just looking at it, right? So it's massive. I mean, go to, think of any big place that is just breathtaking, right, where you see weight, you see glory, you see massiveness, you see might. Okay, now imagine you're standing in front of Niagara Falls, Grand Canyon, whatever it is, whatever that place is where you're just captivated by glory. You're just captivated by power, okay? Think about this. And instead of gazing at and looking at that, you crawl into a box that has that's filled with mirrors and you just stare at yourself. And you would just rather just stare at yourself. That's insane, right? That is absolutely insane. But, but this is what we do we'd much rather crawl in our box and just stare at ourselves. I'm saying, get out of your box. Because when you stand before and see that, what what happens? No one feels strong in that moment, right? Right? No one, if you stood in front of those things, feels like, oh, man, I can bench press a lot. You know what I mean? Like, no, that Niagara Falls will crush you. You know what I mean? Like, like no one's feeling weighty. No one's feeling powerful, right? I mean, so, so when you gaze upon this humility shown in the cross of Jesus Christ, it just humbles you. You're not thinking about you. You're not thinking about you. You can't think about you when you're gazing at that. The problem is pride comes up when we take our eyes off of that. The second we stop looking away from mercy and grace and all that God did, at the second we do that, we get prideful. We start thinking about me, we crawl back into our box and get all the mirrors and just want to stare at ourselves. And I think that's an encouragement God's giving. Here's, here's how he ends this, and this is so great. My favorite part of this passage Jesus, who's on the throne, angels are worshiping him, he comes down here, washes their feet, takes care of their needs, gets nailed to a Roman cross, an incredible picture of humility rises and because that happened look at these last three verses therefore because of all that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the time at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father what is God doing? He's doing what he has repeatedly said he would do and has done throughout salvation history he exalts the humble. But what does he do? He takes the one, the only one who displayed the maximum infinite level of humility and exalts him to the highest place. So so God has always said, I oppose the proud, I exalt the humble. Well, Jesus Christ is the essence of humility. He's the object of humility. So he can't put him any higher. So because of the most perfect humility displayed, God exalts him and says everyone is going to bow their knee and confess that he was in fact God in the human flesh. This is not universalism. This is not everybody bowing in repentance. This is the unbeliever and believer saying, oh my gosh, he is who he says he is. I can't handle the weight of that glory and they fall on their knees and worship. Some to their damnation, some to their everlasting joy. Boy, that's scary. And here's what's a good way to really understand this. He's just quoting Isaiah. Isaiah says this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Guys, this is so, let's end here. This is so, this is so humbling. We can't say, I swear to God. Because we don't know if we'll actually keep a promise. That's why we shouldn't say it, right? We can't swear to anything. And you definitely can't swear to yourself because you're imperfect. God of the universe is the only being that exists that can say, I swear by my own name. Because I'm perfect. And I am promising, I'm swearing by myself that one day reality will be fully seen. Here's why this is so important to get, is because those of us who live in pride, live in conceit, and think that we are God, and sit on the throne of our lives, sit on an imaginary throne. It's an illusion. You think you're on a throne. You think you have control. You think you call the shots. You think you deserve glory. And God's saying, no, 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 there's one throne. There's one who sits on it. There's one who deserves it. You're not going to steal anything from him. Right, so so here's the thing. If you spend your life trying to sit on this high throne, in pride and arrogance, the throne doesn't exist. (laughs) It's imaginary. (laughs) You think you're sitting on one, only to realize one day, I'm not on anything. He has always been sitting on his throne. And the only proper response is unworthiness. Humility. Considering others better than ourselves. See, humility happens, I really believe, when gratitude happens. Because gratitude enjoys all that they've been given. Right? That's how life will always work best, the grateful heart. That's why the Bible always talks about a grateful heart. So you have to be grateful for the humility displayed in Jesus to cause you to fall to your knees in humility. If there's no gratitude, there will be no humility. So I just I'm just I want to ask us, because I think this this lands really practically for us, how do you approach this faith family? How do you approach Sunday morning? How do you approach community? Do you you approach it with an attitude of, man, how can I serve you? How can I better you? How can I encourage you? How can I be there for you? Because we're plagued with, just like we talked about last week, that we we think in arrogance and pride the church is put on this earth to serve us and to meet our needs. I want my latte before I come in, and I don't want to carry my Bible, put it on the screen, and I want good parking, and I don't have to walk far, and I want good AC, right? I mean... That's natural, right? Because we're prideful, right? But you know what the Bible will say? And this was a hard one that I was thinking about this week. The Bible will tell you to outdo one another in honor. That's what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible will say, hey, in the, in the faith family, you should be outdoing each other in honor. Wow. How does that affect our perspective? How does that, right? Amazing to think about. And and I really think that this is one of the objective evidences of conversion and that Christ is Lord of your life. I do. I do just think this is one of, there are many, I think it's one of the clearest ways that the cross of Jesus Christ has so invaded your heart. You know, the the setup guys, right? They come in here, 7 a.m., get up at 6.15, set up. Everything's ready, you walk in. Why do they do that? so you don't have to, right? If they didn't do it, who would, right? People who serve in different places of the church, why do they do it so others don't have to? Why does the children's ministry so badly want to help moms not have to participate back there and care for their kids? Because they don't want them to have to, because they do it all week. They want to give them a break. They want to serve them. They want to look to their interests. Why, why Why is anything done, right? Because so others don't have to. Imagine what God could do with this place if we were like that, and God is at work doing that. Oh, brothers, sisters, I'm so encouraged, and I'm here to say, let's keep going, let's keep marveling and looking at the humility displayed in Jesus. Let's ask Him to help us with that. God, make this place more humble. God, we know that this, I know this stings everyone's heart because it stung mine the entire week. God, I know that I don't often enough look to the interests of others. God, protect us from arrogance. Protect us from always looking to the faults of others. God, there's no place for that. God, help us to to kill that through the power, grace, and mercy found in the cross of Jesus Christ. God, I pray when we find our hearts lingering there that we'd look at the Grand Canyon again, that we'd look at you again that we'd look at this Jesus, who had full unwavering authority and power and prestige and fame and right, right prestige, yet did not consider that a thing to be held onto for his own benefit and became the form of a servant in human likeness and bore the wrath that we could never bear on our own, took the sin for us that we could never cancel in debt, lived the perfect life, Rose again, validating it all. Offering newness of life. God, may we walk in that. God, I praise we observed the Lord's Supper this morning that we would consider the weight of your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. God, make us a humble people. God, help us to be humble in correction. God, help us to try to outdo one another in honor. God, thank you that this is possible, that you say this is your mind. In Christ Jesus, and may you receive all the glory and praise for it. And may many be reconciled to God by the way that we interact and worship as a faith family. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, maybe this morning's a good a good time for you before you take Lord's Supper, just to examine your heart as we always do. But maybe to consider where places of pride might be bubbling up.